Thanks, Janae and Jen. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Man, it so encourages me to know that here in this body, there are people as radical as Janae that are going out for two and a half years to advance the gospel in Africa. That's crazy. And there are some other people that are doing similar things, and we'll talk about them later. But I've had a pretty interesting past couple of weeks, I would say. If you would have asked me two weeks ago, hey, Luke, do you think you have five to ten hours more of time per week for a new hobby? I would have told you, definitely not. I feel like I don't have time for my current hobbies, much less any new one. Then I encountered Pokemon Go. (laughs) And I'll tell you, this game is addicting. It is so fun. And I actually didn't have time for it. It just kind of cut out my sleep. I have slept way less. <laughs> slept way less in the last two weeks than a long time. <laughs> Anyone else play Pokemon Go in here? Yeah. I know there's more of you who are ashamed to admit it. I know. I saw some hands like... How many of you are feeling dynamically faithful today? All of your hands should be up. If you've been around for the past couple of weeks, you know that the series we're in is designed for dynamic faith. And the major premise of this series is that when we get born again, when we accept Jesus, that we become hardwired for faith so that it is no longer something that we feel, but something that we are and feel. And it's something that, regardless of how we're feeling in a given moment, remains true. It is part of our identity. It's kind of like, for me, Pokemon Go is not part of my identity. I really feel like I love it right now, but in a couple of months, I probably won't, or maybe a year. (laughs) Hopefully not for the rest of my life. Please pray for me that it's not for the rest of my life. It's not part of my identity. It's something that I'm feeling right now I might not be feeling later. A different thing is that I am the son of Jerry and Teresa Hazelmeyer. That does not change, regardless of how I feel about my parents. Right now, I'm closer with my parents than I've ever been, but when I was 19, I just finished my senior year of high school. That's right, I was legally an adult the entire duration of my senior year. And if anyone's experienced that situation before, you know what the result of that is. A rebellious, legally adult person living with two other people that are trying to stop them from making terrible decisions. So there was conflict there, and I probably didn't feel towards my parents a lot of love. And they probably, I mean, I know they felt it towards me, but I bet you a lot of times they didn't. But what I'm trying to say is none of that changed the fact that I am a son of Jerry and Teresa Hazelmeyer. It is part of who I am. No matter how I'm feeling, it cannot be changed. Same thing for faith. No matter how faithless you ever feel, it is always true that you are hardwired for faith. That cannot be taken from you. That's the point of this series. That's what we're trying to really drill in our minds is that we got to stop thinking, I'm just a faithless person. We're all designed for faith. 
And so we've talked a lot about faith in God in this series. What does it look like to have more faith in God? Even a little bit, we've talked about having faith in ourselves. But what I want to focus on right now is what does it look like in the kingdom of God to have faith in other people? And in particular, I want to focus in on our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it look like to have faith in people? And I think that we can be tempted to take a black or white perspective here. That, well, they're sons and daughters of God, so they, we just always let them off the hook for anything they do because they're children of God. And that's what Jesus did for us, unconditional love. So we got to just, unconditional forgiveness, so we got to do that too. And I think there's another perspective where it's like, I'm going to view you and really critically examine all of your flaws and mistakes and failures and keep them in my mind whenever I'm interacting with you every time. I don't think either of those is the right way to go. And so what I want to do is open up to 2 Corinthians 5, so you can turn there now, and pull out three key beliefs for having faith in people. Three key beliefs that give us the proper perspective, like the biblical perspective that we as believers should have of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 right now, we're going to read verses 14 through 17. This is Paul, and he's talking to a church in Greece, and he's reminding them of the truth of the gospel that changes everything. So here we go, reading in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Starting in verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So key belief for having faith in people, number one, is this. We're all dead. Every single one of us are dead. And so this can, I remember growing up as a, in church, hearing messages, and I really understood the whole Jesus died for my sins part. But I never really got the we're dead thing. And I don't really think I totally understood that concept until three or four years ago. um, Because it just wasn't something that we talked a whole lot about. And obviously, it's not like physical death. I mean, we're all still here, right? We're all still alive. So what kind of death is it? Well, the thing that died is the thing that attached itself to us in the Garden of Eden, when humanity fell. It's the sin nature. The sinful nature that God did not create for us died with Christ. I never understood that. I never knew that my sin nature was something that was crucified to the cross with Jesus. I always just thought that I got into heaven, but I'm still a sinner until I get there. I know this isn't anything new for this body. It's something we've talked a lot about. But 
I feel like a lot of times we as speakers, we talk about this subject and then we kind of move on right away. And there might be some people who are like, wait a minute. If you're saying that anyone who is in Christ, that their sin nature died and I still sin, does that mean that I'm not in Christ? Like, what does that mean? And so I want to take a second and explain that. I want to clarify that question. And I think the key to understanding this is that when we're talking about our sinful nature being dead, there's two possible ways that we can see that. We can see our, the identity of the sinful nature being dead or the behavior. Identity and behavior. Those are two very different things. To give you an example, a couple months ago, for house group, the young adults ministry here, we had a house leader meeting. Each house group has got two or three leaders and we all meet up once a month. And so we were meeting on a Monday evening. And in our meetings, we always set aside time for worship and for listening to the Holy Spirit. We want to give him a voice in every meeting and give him the chance to completely change our plans for that meeting if he so desires. So we're doing that and we're praying and a number of people were saying, yeah, I really think that we should press into having childlike joy. And another person said something, yeah, I've been, I've been feeling the same thing and I was, feel like God was speaking the same thing to me right, right in that moment. So long story short, we turned on the like, most upbeat party Christian music that we could find on YouTube and all danced around the room for five minutes, giving each other hugs and smiling and laughing as part of our meeting. I was one of the dancers, okay? I was exhibiting the behavior of dancing. I was dancing around the room just like everyone else. I know it's really hard to imagine, but I was doing it. I was exhibiting the behavior of dancing, but let me tell you guys something. If you would have been there seeing me, you would not call me a dancer, okay? I was behaving like a dancer, but I am not a dancer. It's the difference between behavior and identity. I love how at this church, people really feel the confidence to sing out and sing out loud during worship. If you come up here, yeah, you can hear the stuff coming through the speakers, but you can also hear everyone around you, which is really amazing. Now, moment of honesty, a come to Jesus moment with all of you. Some of you are not singers. (laughs) I'm sorry, okay? Some of you are not singers. I love it that you're exhibiting the behavior of singing, and I want you to keep on doing it, okay? Do it louder. But it's not going to make you a singer, okay? Some of you just need to hear that. It's not going to make you a singer. So there are tons of people here that are behaving like singers, but there are only some who are actually singers. It's the difference between behavior and identity. And so what this means in the kingdom is that I, as a born-again believer, may struggle with lying, but I am not a liar. Liar is not a part of who I am. I may struggle with saying hurtful words to somebody else, but being a hurtful person is not who I am. It's the difference between behavior and identity. And so now we were we did have a sinful identity and we committed sinful behaviors. Now we have a righteous identity and we commit both righteous and sinful behaviors. And hopefully the righteous ones are continuing to go up and the sinful ones are continuing to go down. 
the difference between behavior and identity. Is this making sense? Okay, cool. So I want to go into a couple scriptures in case you don't believe me. Let's see what the Bible says. So turn with me to Colossians 2, 11, if you want. Colossians 2, 11 says this. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now, I know it's kind of awkward how often the Bible talks about circumcision, but we want to be biblical here, so we're going to talk about it, okay? And I just want to say this. I have a friend, Trevor, who cut off his pinky finger a while ago and couldn't sew it back on. It's gone, okay? Really hear this. The tip of his finger is gone, and it's never coming back, okay? In the same way, the sinful nature, circumcision, it's such a powerful metaphor of what Christ separated from us. The sinful nature was separated from us at the spiritual circumcision, and it is never coming back, okay? It is never coming back. I mean, is there any person in here who is both circumcised and uncircumcised? Just pop your hand up real quick. I saw some women popping their hands up. That's kind of weird. I don't mean to be crass, but you get the point, right? Like, it's, never, it's done with. It is never coming back. It is put away, okay? Or another verse, Romans 6, chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 6, verse 6 says this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. The body of sin was done away with. The old self was crucified. I grew up in Christianity thinking that the fact that I was crucified with Christ meant that I just like worked really hard not to sin every day. And that was my, that was me crucifying my old self. I don't know where I got that belief. Crucifixion is an execution method. It, it kills. And so I found out that Jesus, he didn't only die for me, but he also killed me also. He killed the part of me that was sinful on the cross. It's gone. One last thing. Someone might say, okay, I understand all of that, but if we define a sinner as one who sins... Doesn't that mean that we're all both saints and sinners at the same time? And that can sound right at first, but I really don't think that that's how we should define the term sinner. Let me ask you all a question. Answer out loud if you wouldn't mind. What does a firefighter do? Puts out fires, right? Remember a time when Will and I were at his parents' house and we decided we want to cook a pizza, pop the pizza in, Open the door a little while later, and there's a fire, a flame, in the back of the oven, okay? It wasn't grease or anything. We took the pizza out and everything. The fire's still going. Well, it was an electrical fire, and so we uh, could have just unplugged the oven. It would have went out, but instead, we thought, let's get the fire extinguisher. So, I don't know about all of you, but I always thought that a fire extinguisher, like, dispensed this nice foam that was very easily contained... And just put the fire out real neatly. 
Okay? I didn't know that it actually shoots out like just tons of dust that will get into every nook and cranny of your house. So this is an hour before house group was going to start that night. And Will and I get the fire extinguisher. We try to call Van, but Van uh, was in a meeting. And so he'd probably tell us to do it. And he told us later, I would never have told you guys to do that. <laughs> so we, we empty the fire extinguisher and lo and behold, the fire is still going because it's an electrical fire. And I kid you not, we spray it just in the oven in the kitchen. On different floors, dust got into every room behind closed doors. A layer of it was over every single seat that we had set up downstairs for house group. And so for the next hour, we were like putting fans up and scrambling to clean up all this dust before house group started. And it still was super dusty there. And you can actually still find remnants of it in cracks in the floors two and a half years later. (laughs) We eventually got the fire out when we unplugged it. And so we put the fire out, okay? We put out the fire, but we, were, we are not firefighters. <laughs> this is not who we are. And so when we wanted to find the term sinner, we shouldn't say a sinner is one who sins. A sinner is one whose nature it is to sin. A sinner is one who, at their core, it's who they are to sin. And that's not who we are when we're in Christ. We are washed, sanctified, justified, glorified, sons and daughters of God, co-heirs of Christ, seated, with, seated in heavenly places, citizens of heaven. That's who we are. And the sinful nature is gone. Okay? So now let's talk about the first part of the verse that we just read. I know we read it like 10 minutes ago. But... I want to read now 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Key belief number two is this. Growing in love for others starts with believing more of the gospel. Paul says the love of Christ controls us because, and then he shares the gospel message about Jesus dying for all, us being dead, so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him. The the fruit of believing more of the gospel is loving people more. So if you want to love people more or better in your life, the answer isn't to think, okay, what are the five love languages? Uh, physical touch, gifts, acts of service, words of affirmation, one other one. And how can I do those like two times a day to all the people I care about? You know? I mean, that's great, do that. But what a more successful method would be is, Jesus, how can I further understand exactly what you did for me and what you did for these people? How can I love them coming out of that? Believing more of the gospel is the answer to loving people more. So moving into verse 16, Paul says this. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. 
We recognize no one according to the flesh. You know, I love it that at this church we talk about the identity message so much that we don't recognize ourselves according to the flesh or according to the sinful nature, that we recognize ourselves as sons and daughters of God. But if we only apply the identity message to how we view ourselves, yet we're viewing everyone around us like sinners still, what's the point of even having the identity message in the first place? Like, if we only apply it to ourselves and not everyone else, that's just selfish. Like, if we really want to say we're a church that believes the identity message that Jesus, that we were sinners, then we were saved by grace, and now we're saints, we got to treat each other like saints. We can't treat each other or think about each other or talk about each other like sinners anymore. Something's got to change if we're going to believe this message. We recognize no one according to the flesh. Or I love how the New Living Translation of the Bible says it, that we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We no longer evaluate others from a human point of view. And so rather than looking at someone, seeing their mistakes, seeing their struggles, and then applying those to who they are as an individual... We look at someone and we see a son or a daughter of God who happens to be making a mistake or struggling with something. We don't apply a person's flaws, a person's failures to who they are any longer. That's what it means to recognize no one according to the flesh. And really, I can't fully love you if... Let me give you an example. If you lie to me, and I then view you as a liar, I can't fully love you. Because God, we know that God hates sin. God hates lying. It's demonically originated, the idea of lying. And so if I view you as a liar, then I can love some of you, but I can't love all of you. On the contrary, if I don't recognize you according to the flesh, like this book says, then I can still see you as a blameless son of God and daughter of God, even when you lie to me. I can see you as that righteous person who happens to be struggling with lying at this moment. I can still love all of you while not not loving the struggle that you're in. That's the attitude that we need to have if we want to apply the identity message to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So key belief number three is this. Loving someone is refusing to allow their actions to compromise who you know they are. That's what loving someone looks like. Man, you just gossiped about me, but I still know you're amazing. And I know it's not who you are to gossip. Man, you just hurt me with those words, but I know that's not who you are. You got Jesus in you. He made you as you ought to be. You know the word righteous? It just means as one ought to be. We are made in the likeness and the image of God. So when we are made righteous again, it just means that everything that wasn't intended is gone. And now we are who God intended us to be. And so um, I have a four-legged friend who I can apply this truth to. Let's get a picture of her. There she is. Okay, 
It's my dog, Sandy. She's the most amazing dog in the world. That is her identity, okay? (laughs) And that will stay her identity in my mind until the day one of us dies. Probably her because she's 14, but who knows? I don't care that sometimes she goes to the bathroom in the house. She has breath that makes me want to gag sometimes. (laughs) Or that when I lay out a nice, fresh, clean set of clothes, hop in the shower, come back out, she's laying on them. (laughs) Hair all over my black shirt, you know. Despite the fact that she behaves in those ways, I will always view her as the most amazing dog because I love her, you know. And so... What if that was our perspective of our brothers and sisters in Christ? That we understood that, man, they are so, so amazing. And even when they do stuff that irritates, hurts, or disappoints us, that we don't let those things cloud who we see them as people to be. That we don't let that compromise who we know they are in Christ. So that's great and all. I do want to take a second to talk about, well, What do we do then? Like, what is our perspective when people are making lots of unwise decisions or they are being really hurtful to us? Or they, like, do we just accept that? Like, oh, well, it's not who they are and I don't really know why they're doing it, but I'm not going to think about it anymore. Like, what's the right perspective there? And I think the right perspective there is this. What if, when say someone lied to me, what if instead of me viewing them as a liar, I viewed them as a son or daughter of God, whose honesty the enemy was attacking. That, man, they lied to me, and of course they have some personal accountability in this, but it's not their nature that's fueling that desire to lie. It's not God, so it's probably the enemy that's fueling that desire to lie. If you don't believe me, let's go to the Bible again. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What if every time someone angered us, we didn't get angry at the person, but angry at the enemy that was breathing on them to do whatever they did in the first place? What if, as we look into our country right now and see all the hate going back and forth and all the tragedies going back and forth, What if instead of directing our anger towards people who disagreed with us, we directed it towards the enemy who's the author of all that stuff in the first place? How would that change? That would change everything. And the sad thing is, that's what we should be doing in the first place. Like, how have we forgotten that it's not God, it's not, it's the enemy that's doing this stuff. Yet he kind of skirts on by and makes us destroy each other in the process. Stays out of sight. Let's us do all of the destruction for him. We need to acknowledge the spiritual warfare aspect that's going on. If someone hurts me 10 days in a row, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I mean, there is in the scriptures a process for confronting a brother or sister of Christ when they hurt you or sin or whatever. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We should do that. This really comes back to how do we view them as an individual? Do we view them as the sum of all of their mistakes and struggles? Or do we maintain what the gospel says who they are and 
go after these struggles and these mistakes and these failures, um, knowing that the enemy is probably fueling them in a lot of cases and that it's not who the person actually is. So what I want to do now is just give you three practical takeaways for all the stuff that I just shared, okay? Three ways to apply this stuff in your everyday life. First one is this. Don't make I am statements regarding your sin struggles. If you're struggling with sexual immorality, don't say, man, I am just sexually immoral. No, I'm a son or a daughter of God. It's something I happen to be struggling with. If you're struggling with, I know I've been using this example a lot, but lying. I know I'm not a liar. I'm struggling with lying right now, but I'm still a son and a daughter of God. Because that sin nature was totally, it's gone. It's never coming back. Second thing. Don't make negative identity statements when talking to or about someone else. If somebody in your, from your perspective makes a really unwise decision, don't say, man, they're just so unwise. That's the opposite of what God is saying about that person right now. Like, it's kind of scary, but when we talk like that, we're not talking like God. We're talking like the devil. Or man, that person is just lazy. That person is just promiscuous. I mean, I know this is like tough and it's kind of harsh, but it's just, it's just not okay to talk about children of God like that. For all of you parents, imagine someone was saying those things about your kids. Like, that would probably cause a fire to light, light up in your heart. I think the same thing happens to God when we do it. Third thing, when in conflict, ask God these three questions. One, what are you doing in this situation? Two, what is the enemy doing in this situation? Three, what is my next step in this situation? So we ask God, like, God, okay, this, this, there's this tension here. This person's hurting me, but what are you doing right now? I don't want to just focus on what the enemy is doing. What are you doing? And then ask him, like, what, what is the enemy's role in this? And third, what is my next step? I don't got to fix it all right now, but what is my next step? Are you guys okay? Are you getting this? Okay. Well, that's all that I have for you right now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I just want to tell you, my heart in this is not to condemn anybody. I am preaching to myself probably more than I'm preaching to everyone else. My heart is that I see this vision of, man, if all of us, starting with all of us, could just only speak positively about each other, like when we're talking about like identity things, who we are, I think that in and of itself would just open up the gates for revival in our community and in our city. Okay.